Okay, well, I was hoping to start with a question to see if people are paying any attention to my sermons before I spend another hour on you guys. Uh, what was the topic of last week's message on? I'm kind of deaf, so you have to shout. The power of God. All right, that's good. Any, anything else? Mr. Jake Wilson? The Holy Spirit. Good. And, and that they're both connected. Neither one was the word I was hoping to hear, but they're both good. I'm sorry? Being filled with the Holy Spirit. Good, excellent. Uh, we talked last time about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit, we pointed out, means to know God's will, to have your mind set upon the will of God or the desire of God for you, and then to be filled with his power to be able to do it. So being filled with the Spirit really means to know or have your mind set upon the things of God and then to experience the power of God in your life in being able to do his will. Not easy, right? We talked about the fact that the battling with the flesh, we have the flesh, and the flesh does not want to do the will of God. So the Holy Spirit gives you the victory over the flesh to do the will of God. Now, today we'll look at an application of that. So that was perhaps maybe a little heady, being filled with the Holy Spirit, doing the will of God. What is it to do the will of God? What is God's will for me as a person? And today we will look at what would it be like in the nuclear family to be filled with the Spirit. Anybody knows what the nuclear family means? <laughs> nuclear family means a husband and a wife, and if God so wills, children. That's what it means. What are the relationships like in the nuclear family? Husband and wife and children, if the Lord blesses you with children. Now, I have a some pictures or slides, and um, the point is, as we look and think about what it is, is it like to be a spirit-filled family, we're going to have to think, what is God's idea of a family? What does God want the family to be like? And we're going to have to do something uh, called, uh, I forget the word for it, you know, maybe a painting reconstruction. In other words, when you fix a painting, because, you see, we have an enemy in this world, and we call him the devil or Satan, and he came into this world to destroy the works of God and to mar them. Now, the family was God's invention, God's creation. He made Adam, he made Eve to be with Adam as his wife, and he gave them children. That was all part of God's design. The family was God's plan, God's design. And as Satan came into this world to destroy the things of God, guess what? The family was one of the things he went after. And so maybe you could look at this as the scar that Satan put upon the family when he came in. And you see Adam and Eve already starting to fight, blaming each other to who ate the forbidden fruit. But if you keep on going, next slide, you know, boy, this day and age, you know, there's almost no residue of what the family is supposed to look like. And I can talk about statistics. Uh, we used to talk about the fact that 50% of marriages are likely to end in divorce today. Not God's plan. Not God's plan. Well, the good news is today it's less than 50% of marriages that end in divorce. The bad news, the reason for it is people are just not getting married. And that's why it's less than 50%. And I don't have to look at statistics. I look at my own, my own family. My, uh, I have uh, three siblings. One of them is married with children. They lived together before they got married, but they did eventually get married, went to a civil union. Uh, the other, I have a, a, a sister who has a child and a partner. And I said, why don't you get married? She says, I don't believe in getting married. I don't think people need to get married. Yeah, just that simple. And uh, another sister with a you know, partner, I don't know if that's the right word, whether she uses the same word. No plans of getting married, no plans to have children. That's the state of marriage today. Well, we're going to try to do something called, uh, as I tried to say before, next slide, and that is a painting reconstruction. Apparently, 
There's tools that people can use to take a painting that looks like what we see on the right, your right-hand side, and which, you know, it's hard to tell what's there, and somehow they're able to fix it and show you what it was originally supposed to look like. And that's what we'll try to do today. We'll try to look at what God describes the family should look like. And then by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, claim that for ourselves, desire to have that kind of a family, or at least to take the role that God expects me to have in the family and behave in the way that God wants me to behave, whether I'm a husband, a wife, children, parents. Okay, with that, let's look at the first verse in our passage, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Ladies first. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. So the first role we're looking at is that of a wife. And according to the word of God, the wife should submit to her husband, or uh, it says later, be subject to her husband. Now, this is an unpopular um, doctrine, one that uh, uh, you know, wives, maybe women in general, don't tend to like. But that's not surprising because we talked about the fact that the flesh goes against the spirit. And we're going to find that's true for all of them. It's not just the wives. It's going to be the husbands and the children and the parents that struggle in fulfilling the will that God has for them because the flesh goes against the spirit, against the things of God. Now, the other thing we see here is that there's a picture, a picture of the husband and the wife is, are a picture of Christ and the church. So when God did his artwork of painting of the perfect family, he planned for the husband to look like Christ within that picture and the wife to be like the church. So God had a particular plan, a relationship that he wanted to reveal. Um, now, God, one of the reasons we don't like the idea of submitting to someone is because we think of them as abusing their power and using their authority over us selfishly for their advantage. Right? That's what we're afraid of. I don't want to submit to so-and-so because he might make me do things that I don't want to do, things that are good for him but not good for me. But that wasn't God's idea in it. Uh, Christ loved the church. It says here that he is the savior of the body. Now, one thing that we know all women, all wives want, is a hero to love, to submit to. And uh, that's what Christ was. He was our hero. He came from heaven and he saved us. And because of that as the church, we're happy to submit to him. It says this, that his commandments are not burdensome to us. The Lord tells us what he wants us to do, and that's not burdensome, that's not heavy. We're happy to do it. Why? Because we obey him out of love. He said, if you love me, obey my commandments. And so it's only out of love for him, really, that he wants us to obey him. And that's the same way he wants wives to submit to their husbands, out of love. He wants them to, to, to recognize such a great love. <clears throat> and, and the order of things, of course, is we love Christ because he first loved us. Women should be, wives should be able to see such love in their husband's for them, that they love their husbands back, and out of that love, submit to their husband. So it's not supposed to be a burdensome thing for a wife in the ideal family that God had in mind. <clears throat> now, we'll talk about husbands later, okay? We got some guns to cover, but uh, that's the goal. Now, also we should note, it's not that God put the wife in the submissive part because they're somehow less spiritual or less godly than men are. If we look at uh, the Gospels, we see that often the women were more on the ball, so to speak, than the men were. They actually play, uh, displayed greater spirituality. It says that women used to follow the Lord and the disciples and to provide for them out of their own substance. So they would take care and help the Lord in his ministry. <clears throat> when Jesus was going to the cross, the disciples were clueless. They thought, we're going to Jerusalem Jesus will ascend to the throne, we'll all be there at his right-hand side, wonderful. 
But there was a woman alone who recognized, no, he's going up to the cross to die for me. And she took an alabaster flask of immense value and broke it and anointed the Lord with it because of her great love for him, for what he would do. The disciples rebuked her. They didn't get it. And Jesus says, wherever this gospel, this gospel will be preached, what this woman did for me will be spoken of her because it was such a precious act for him. A woman was perceptive. The disciples were not. When Jesus was taken to the cross, the disciples fled. The women stuck with him and went with him, so to speak, to watch him die on the cross. After he died and was buried, the disciples were hiding. The women went out to do something for his body, what they could do for him. When he rose from the dead, it was women who first were witnesses of his resurrection. So it's not because women are less spiritual than men that God wants wives to submit to their husbands. Why then? Well, we often call the women the beautiful sex. I think it was because God wanted women, wives, to be beautiful. There's an, a special beauty that God sees that we don't see in submission. And to see that, we can go to 1 Peter 3, verses 3 <coughs> through 6. And this is God speaking to women. Of course, through the apostles, Apostle Peter, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. God looks at women and he sees a submissive, quiet spirit, and he thinks that is beautiful, the most beautiful things in the world. Again, our eyes were tainted by, tainted by Satan. You know, our idea of beauty is a person who is proud and strong and stands up you know, above the rest. Well, that's you know, a beautiful person. Not in God's eyes. In God's eyes, it's the beautiful gentleness, submission. He sees in the heart of a submissive wife. He looks at that and says, that is beautiful. Now, I would add this. You know, it's not easy to submit to husbands that are fallible. fallible. (laughs) Submitting to Christ is one thing. He is perfect. My husband is not perfect. Well, I'll say this. God is no one's debtor. And if a woman submits to a husband, God will take care of her. And we have an example of this in the story of Sarah. We just mentioned Sarah. And um, one day, one day, Uh, Abraham went down to Egypt because there was famine in the land and uh, he was afraid and he told Sarah, you know, you're a beautiful woman and I'm afraid someone will want you so badly they'll kill me to take you. So please do me a favor. If anybody asks you, say you're my sister. Right? Abraham, telling his wife who's being submissive to him, say that you're my sister. And uh, of course, people do come to her and say, well, who are you? Well, I'm his sister. Well, they take her to Pharaoh's harem to be used as a sexual object by Pharaoh. You know, what a terrible thing. Here I am, I'm submitting to my husband whom God has given me, and look where I've ended up. And uh, God does not allow Pharaoh to touch her. He afflicts his entire household and comes to Pharaoh in a dream and says, you're a dead man because of this woman, because you take it, you've taken another man's wife. And Pharaoh, respond, Pharaoh you know, restores Sarah to Abraham, and sends Abraham out of the land. But the point is, God protected Sarah. She trusted in God, and in trusting in God, she submitted to her husband, and God took care of her because of that. So God is no woman's debtor. Finally, just final thoughts about wives here. We'll get to the husbands next. Is there's a certain power in the submission of a wife that God can use as a witness. And first, it is a witness to husbands who do not obey the word. We're told in 1 Peter, same passage, verses 1 and 2, 
Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So wives, by submitting to their husband, can be the kind of testimony that the husband himself needs to submit to the word of God, perhaps to be saved, perhaps if he's just not walking in the will of the Lord, to, to surrender and, and come under the will of the Lord. Now, a wife could tell her husband, look, husband, you're not walking with the Lord. You need to change what you're doing. But the Bible is telling us her submitting to him is a more powerful witness than simply telling him. And in fact, telling him may have the opposite result. Submitting to him has the power of God to convict him and bring him into submission to the will of God for him. See, I have another cup of water coming to me. Clearly, I'm running out. Thank you very much. <clears throat> okay. Uh, the other power of witness, or power of witness to a husband, there's an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians 11, and it says, For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And if you look around, you see some women have head covering. That is the reason why the Bible says that when they cover their head, it's a symbol of authority. It means that they want to um, confess that they recognize that God has set men or their husbands in authority over them. And angels look, and angels learn something about obedience by wives willing to take the place in the relationship of the marriage that God wants for them. And, you know, God teaches angels things through the church. And angels have issues with submitting to authority as well. Satan and the demons used to be angels, and they rebelled against God's authority. And God says angels look down, and they see a head covering on a, on a woman in a church meeting, and they learn something from that about their need to obey God as well. So women, by your submission, you are a witness. You're a witness to your husbands. You're a witness to heavenly beings looking on you. Okay, husband's turn. Continuing in verse 25. Back to Ephesians 5, of course. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husbands. So first of all, this sounds like an easy command. Love your wives. But, uh, and and uh, the problem is, the problem is, sorry, yes, it should be easy. You are wonderful wives, and we should all be madly in love with you all the time. But the world's idea of love is this. You know, I love you because when I'm with you, I feel good. Now, if that is love, who am I really loving? Loving myself, right? I love you because when I'm with you, I feel good. At the end, it's just going back to me. I don't love you because I really want your good. I love you because I want my good. And that is one of the reasons so many marriages fail is because at some point or another, your wife or your husband is not going to make you feel good. And if you think, well, you know, that means love, you know, I no longer love them because I no longer feel good being with them, well, let's just separate. 
you know, and they divorce. Well, that's not what God means by love. And he gives us Christ's love to the church as an example for how the husbands should love their wives. And there's two things we see in the example here. First of all, it is sacrificial. It says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus looked at us from heaven and he saw us deserving the judgment of God against our sins and he said, I rather take this in their place. I rather suffer for their sins than they suffer for their sins. It was a sacrificial love. Now, trying to make this into a real world example, I have a job, thankful to have a job, and uh, you know, I may work a long day and job can be tough. And uh, then after I finish my tough job, where I'm providing you know, uh, income to my family to support my wife and my children, I have to get in the car and fight the commute coming up the 880. And when I get home, I can be kind of tired and I can get in and say, wife, you know, prepare me some dinner. <laughs> you know, and do this and do that because I'm really tired and I worked hard and I did all of this stuff for you and now I want something back. Well, you know, that's one way to end your marriage pretty quickly. <laughs> but the Bible says I should be sacrificing myself for her. So, yes, I was working. You know, I, I acknowledge I've, I've been working hard. What about her? Well, she was at home, and I have uh, four children. And uh, I personally think my wife works harder taking care of my four children and the house, then I work in my job. And uh, yes, you know, I'm in a long commute, a long way in the car, but you know, I can rest in my drive up and listen to sermons or do something edifying. She's not, she's still with those four kids <laughs> that she has to take care of. And I should be thinking, what can I do to help her? She had a long, hard day. What can I do to help her in the next few hours when I'm at home? Maybe I can help do the dishes. Maybe I can help watch the kids and do something to give her a little bit of a break. Putting her ahead of myself. That is sacrificial love. I will take more burden so that she has less of a burden to carry. I mean, pitiful to compare that to what Jesus did for us on the cross. But that's the kind of love that God wants husband to give their wife. A sacrificial love. Putting them in a better place than you put yourself doing things for their sake, not expecting them to do something for your sake. So that's number one. A love for a wife should be sacrificial. Number two, and uh, this is something we'll hear when we'll have uh, the Kids Club performance about 1 Corinthians, love suffers long. It's not a single time event. I can't do this one day and say, well, now I showed my, my wife that I really love her, that's it. You know, the next four days, you know, I expect her to take care of me. No, you keep doing it. You don't stop. The example here by Jesus, it's interesting. It says that uh, he loved the church and gave himself for her, but then it continues and says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So it's not just talking about the cross. I mean, yes, Jesus died for my sins, and that's wonderful, and I should praise him for the rest of eternity for that. But Jesus wasn't done. He continues to minister to me. And it says it's the washing of water by the word. And he applies the word of God to me daily. As I read his word, he works in me. He convicts me of what he sa it says. He helps me understand. He directs my life. He shows me areas in my life that are wrong to make me more the perfect bride, the beautiful bride that he wants me to be. It's a continuing work he does in me. And in the same way, Husband's love to the wives should be continuing. Not a single time event. Always, all the time. I should be thinking, what can I do to bless my wife? What can I do to help her, to show her love? Now we talked about how wives submitting to their husbands is a picture of church submitting to Christ. They fulfill this picture that God had in mind. I think that we as husbands are more privileged that we have the opportunity to exhibit the love of Christ. How we treat our wives 
should be the picture of how much Christ loves the church. And you and I, husbands, have an opportunity to show our wives and to show the world how much Christ loves the church. How? Simply by how we treat our wives. Show the world how much Christ loves the church. Love your wives. And uh, there's also a testimony here. I have a friend named uh, Fernando. I brought him up in uh, a church prayer meetings on Wednesdays quite a few times. He, he uh, was struggling with his marriage, or rather his wife. They were on the verge of a divorce. In fact, they had the papers. They already they sold their house. They, lit, they moved into different houses. And the Lord's done a miraculous way in really bringing them together. And he told me about afterward <clears throat> the reason he believes that they separated was that um, he kept telling his wife that she needs to read her Bible and she needs to go to church and do all these things that as a Christian wife he felt she should be doing. Now, she may not even be saved, but his, all of his nagging her did not work, and he said the reason for it was he wasn't loving her. He wasn't showing her love in a practical practical way. It was just words that he was given, giving to her. Now, just as wives have a power to witness to their husbands by submission, husbands have a power to witness to wives by loving them. As you show your wife the love of Christ, it is a more powerful witness than anything you can tell her about what she should do to be more spiritual. Husbands, love your wives. Now, with women, it kind of ended, with wives, it kind of ended with just the picture. But uh, men are not as spiritual as women. And uh, it's, it says that uh, men think with the stomach. And uh, the idea is, you know, you've you got you to gotta have food for the men to come out and to, to actually participate in what goes on. And there's additional reason given in this passage for men or husbands' self-interest in loving their wives. There's a good logical reason to love your wife, even if you just care about yourself. <laughs> it says that, so why husbands are to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Do I love my body? You bet I do. <laughs> I take good care of my body. Why? Two reasons. First of all, me and my body are connected. <laughs> you know, for as long as we both shall live, you know, me and my body are together. Okay? And in the same way, husbands and wives should be for as long as you both shall live. You're connected. You've become one flesh. I recently watched the movie... Um, I forget the name of it. Now, <clears throat> it's about a fireman and his wife. They almost break up, come back together. Fireproof, right, fireproof. And somebody gives a good illustration there of how a husband and wife should be together forever. He takes a salt shaker and a pepper shaker made out of plastic, and he takes some super glue and he connects them together. <clears throat> and the, other, the person he was showing it as an illustration said, don't do it. <clears throat> and he takes them, and he wants to pull them apart. And the person who just did the illustration, don't do it. If you do it, it'll break them. And that's why the superglue is actually stronger than the plastic itself. And if they, he would try to separate the salt shaker and the, <coughs> and the pepper shaker, they would have broken and the contents would have, would have spilled out. And so a marriage union is so strong that you cannot separate without doing yourself and your husband and wife or wife damage. So divorce, yeah. You know, we can do it in this country not without hurting yourself and hurting the other person you're with. <clears throat> as long as you both should live. The other reason I take good care of my body is if my body is not doing well, I'm not doing well. If I wouldn't feed my body and I would, you know, start losing energy, I'm going to be a miserable person. And the same way, if you don't love your wife and as a result she becomes miserable, guess what? You're going to be miserable. You know, I, I have to confess, a lot of time when I go to the store and get flowers for my wife, it's so that I will feel better. You know, I encourage her with the flowers, I make her feel better, but the result is, you know, 
I'm, I'm happier as well. You know, my home is a more comfortable place to live in when my wife is happy. So husbands, love your wives for your own sakes. Okay, family, husbands, wives, and now we get to children, chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. So first of all, we should realize children are not necessary for a family. You could have a husband and a wife, and you're still a family. But in God's, in God's perfect plan for the ages, he wants to have this union of love between the husband and the wife, and he wants through that for children to come into the world. And this love that already exists between the uh, husband, the wife, to now be extended to the children and them to be brought into that loving circle of the family. <clears throat> now, the command for the children is to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. <clears throat> Goes against the flesh. No surprises there. I have four children. One thing you don't have to teach them is to disobey you. You know, they get that naturally. Um, my one-and-a-half-year-old son, he understands me perfectly well. But I say, you know, Benaya, you know, time to take a bath, go to the bathroom. He runs the other way. He knows what I mean, but he's already naturally disobeys me. One-and-a-half-year-old, I never had to teach him to do that. Against the flesh. <clears throat> God wants children to obey their parents. Now, there's a phrase here, in the Lord... Children obey your parents in the Lord. And uh, I tried to look up to see what that means. And there's two thoughts here. One is, it is the Lord's will for you to obey your parents. And that's pretty obvious from the next verse that follows. The other is that you should obey your parents within the will of the Lord. Which means if your parents tell you to do something which is against God's will... You should disobey them. And that's possible uh, within the within limit of a revealed will of God. Uh, one example I can think of is that of the apostles. Jesus told them to go and preach the gospel. And then their authorities, the government of the nation, told them, you shouldn't preach the gospel. Stop talking to people in his name. And they go and they disobey them anyways. And then the authorities say, why did you disobey us? And they say, we should obey God rather than men. So if there's a direct command from God in the scriptures, like do not steal, do not lie, and your parents tell you to steal or to lie, you should say, well, I can't. God said I cannot do that. And uh, thinking back to wives, that could potentially apply to wives. If there's a very clear command from the Bible, you know, you shall not do this, and your husband tells you to do the wrong thing, I think you're within your rights to stand, well, I, rather, I, I have to obey God rather than men. But again, it has to be a very clear command of God before you, you go against a God-given authority. Okay. Uh, an example we have, always good to have example, of children obeying their parents, we have in Christ himself. If you want to, you can turn to Luke chapter 2, a very interesting account in the life of Christ. The only one we have of him as a so to speak, a grown child. He is 12 years old. <clears throat> Luke chapter 41. Sorry, Luke chapter 2, verse 41. says, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So that's the context. It's the feast of the Passover. And says, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Now, the reason they mention he's 12 years old is that it's likely that at this feast he was what we call in, in Hebrew bar mitzvah. Uh, in, in Jewish custom, when a child is born, he is, um, he is not responsible to keep the whole law. He's not really responsible to God. He's under the authority of his parents. He doesn't have to worry about what God has to say until he reaches a certain age of accountability. And uh, that age of accountability today we celebrate with the 13th birthday of a child. So when you're 13, if you're Jewish, you're supposed to have a bar mitzvah. Now in those days, uh, as I understand it, you would 
be bar mitzvah when you went up to the temple for a feast. So it would be whichever one is nearest your 13th birthday. So you could be 12 and be bar mitzvah. That's why I believe Jesus was probably bar mitzvah during this event, going to uh, the temple during the Passover. Now, it says, when they had finished their days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. You wonder why they didn't know it. The reason is they probably came as part of a caravan, a very large party uh, from Nazareth and maybe the surrounding villages up to Jerusalem together, and now they're living together. So in all this multitude, they were assuming Jesus was maybe with his friends or somewhere else, but going with them away from Jerusalem. <clears throat> but supposing him to have been in their company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they, his parents, saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? So here's Jesus, after his bar mitzvah, he wants to stay in the temple. He's finally in an age he can talk to people about God. Before he was at this age, nobody would take him seriously. Well, now he's reached an age of accountability. He can be in the temple. He can get involved in the discussion. And he can actually talk to people about God and be, as he calls it, in his father's business. What's the father's business? It's to reach souls like you and me for God. And that's what Jesus was doing. And that's what he wanted, why he wanted to be in the temple. Now it says, the parents didn't understand it. They didn't understand, why are you here? This is not where you should be. Jesus thought, this is the place to be, the temple. People come here to see God. I can talk to them about God. This is where I want to be. And his parents said, why are you here? You should be with us. And uh, it says, verse 50, but they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. They didn't understand why Jesus wanted to be in the temple. So here's, you know, it's possible for a child to be more spiritually in tune than their parents. It's possible. And here's the case of it. Jesus was more spiritually in tune than his parents. And he felt, the best place for me to be is in the temple, reaches, reaching people for God. His parents feel, no, you should be with us in Nazareth. What should Jesus do? Well, we're told in the next verse, then he went down with them to Nazareth and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. If Jesus himself was subject to human parents, willing to accept the authority of human parents, how much more should you or me or children obey your parents in the Lord? Now, God gives in this passage an incentive to children to do it, like, like, like uh, husbands, they need some, something extra to really want to obey their parents. And uh, I can be sympathetic to that. But it adds here that there's a commandment. So honor your father and your mother was the first commandment with a promise. God made a specific promise to children who would obey their parents, honor their mother and their father. What was the promise? that it will be well with them and they may live long on the earth. That's a promise to take to the bank if you're a child. God promises you, if you will honor the, your parents, listen to what they say, obey them, it will be well with you and you will live long on the earth. Now, it's of course a promise of God and God can do anything he wants, but it's logical if you think of it as a child. Now, you may be really smart, you may be really attuned to the things of God, but guess what? You've only lived on this world for 10, 15, 20 years. Your parents lived longer. They made mistakes. They saw other people make mistakes, and they've learned from those. 
doesn't matter how smart you are, you have less experience than your parents, and your parents love you, it's a love God gave them, and they want to guide you away from those mistakes. And if you listen to what your parents have to say to you, then indeed it will be well with you, and you will live longer upon the earth. They can guide you away from all kinds of problems if you will just honor your father and your mother, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Okay. Last but not least, fathers. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. All right, well, that sounds hard. Doesn't sound so hard. Is that against the flesh or with the flesh? I learned um, a new term when I came to Berkeley called DINKS. Anybody heard of DINKS? It's an acronym for double income, no kids. And, uh, you know, grown-ups don't necessarily want to be parents. I don't see a lot of kids here, so this may be wasted. But, uh, you know, most grown-ups are like kids in their hearts. <laughs> and they would rather run around and have a good time so to speak. And some of them will decide, I don't even want to have any children. Because that means, you know, me or my spouse may not be able to work, and we have less money coming in to go and do fun stuff with. And we have these children, we got to drag them around with us, and we can't do all these fun things we would otherwise want to do. So that's the truth about the way parents are. You know, naturally they're selfish and they think about themselves. And uh, even for people that have kids, it's very easy to try to, you know, put a movie on in front of the kids, and you guys just watch the movie while, you know, me and my wife go and we'll do these other things. It's not thinking about the kids, it's thinking about themselves. Now, we're told not to provoke our children to wrath, you know, and I can tell you, I was thinking about it, at least three things that will provoke your children to wrath. First thing, how to, how to provoke your children to wrath. Number one, do not show them love. Do not show them love. When we took growing kids God's way, we learned about the importance of the love languages because God gives us different children and different children have different ways of understanding love. And, uh, and, and we found that out. You know, you think, well, I'll give my child a hug and a kiss and they'll know that I love them. Well, guess what? With my firstborn, that does not work. Um, but... You know, if you sit down with her and play with her dolls, well, that's something she gets as love. My second daughter, hugs and kisses work all the time. All right, but different children have different ways. But you can provoke your children by not showing them love. If they don't think that your instructions to them is balanced by your love to them or is really motivated by your love to them, they'll be provoked to wrath or anger not provoke your children to wrath. Another thing you can do to provoke your children to wrath, be inconsistent in your expectations of them. So, you know, we have our children and we have certain expectations, but uh, then we come to church, and boy, those expectations go up. <laughs> you know, because, you know, here, you know, people we especially care about and people who know what the Bible expects of children to do, and, you know, our children are not showing the kind of respect to grown-ups that children should, and it really bothers us. But when we're at home with them, we're not expecting them to show us this kind of honor, and, you know, they're reasonably provoked to wrath when all of a sudden our expectations change of how we want them to behave. So keep your expectations the same. And the third way to uh, provoke your children to wrath is expect them to perform or be good when you don't take the time to train them to perform or to do good. And uh, we, you know, we as grown-ups or as, as parents, you know, have certain ideas of how our children should behave. But to train them to behave in that manner takes work, and we don't want to do the work. So here we are, we're expecting them to do well to perform, but on the other side, we're not willing to invest the time and effort of training them. And that provokes them to wrath. <clears throat> Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training 
an admonition to the Lord. First, the key, and then an example. The key to bringing your parents up in the training and admonition of the Lord is to have a proper appreciation for who your children are. And a great example of that is Hannah. So Hannah was praying for a child, didn't have a child, praying for a child, didn't have a child, finally went uh, to the tabernacle, was praying, you know, weeping, and the priest says to her, okay, you will have your request, you will have a child. And she recognized the child that came to her as a present from the Lord, a gift from the Lord. And she promised the Lord that she was going to give the child to the Lord. And that's the case with every child. Every child that we receive is a gift from God. And you know what? God expects us to give the child back to him. And if we have that proper appreciation with every child God gives us, then we can bring them up in the training and admonition for the Lord. We understand the value of the child to God, and we can invest that kind of work in the child to bring them up, to have the value that God wants to have. Samuel had an immense impact on the nation of Israel in restoring the people of God to himself. And that's the kind of impact God wants to use our children for. Now, the example for that, really, uh, is not Hannah. It's God the Father. God the Father. We're told in James 1 that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation of shadow or shadow of turning. How is God our Father shows us love? He gives us gifts. Did you wake up this morning? That was a gift from God the Father. Did you take a breath? That was a gift from God the Father. Did your heart beat to transfer the oxygen to your brain? That was a gift from God the Father. He gives us good gifts. And by that we know that he loves us. And as we saw, there's no variation. He's consistent. His expectations of us are always the same. <clears throat> and is he willing to work with us? Hebrews 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So God works with us. Why? Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they, or human fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. Human fathers can often be selfish and they, you know, discipline their children because they want their own lives to be better, not their children. But he, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. God always trains us so that we will become like him, holy and perfect. He invests the work in us. Now this is something for you fathers to take home. Uh, <clears throat> this is something I heard on a, a sermon I listened to, but there's, there's a, was a Bible school, I don't know if this was a mass or some other uh, seminary, where uh, young men and women go there in order to learn about God, to prepare them to be pastors or preachers, and they would give these people a survey when they came in. And they would ask them, tell us what your father is like. And they would fill out the survey and say what the fathers are like. And at the end of the four years of teachers teaching them about God, they come out and they take a survey and they're asked to tell in the survey what God is like. And it matches the way they saw their fathers as they came into the seminary, four years of Bible training, and they come out, and that's still their view of what God is like. Fathers, you are the best picture or the picture that God has for your children of what God is like. So the way you treat your children, if you show them love, if you have consistent expectations, if you're willing to train them for their own good, that is the image of God that they will live with for the rest of their lives. Fathers, bring them up in the training and admonition 
of the Lord. All right, just in closing, <clears throat> so we talked about this picture, right, of uh, marriage and the or family and the fact that we wanted to restore the picture. And just final thoughts, why? Why should I be filled with the Holy Spirit to restore this picture that God has of the family? Well, first of all, God commands us to, so really there shouldn't be any choice anyways. But number one, it's for your own happiness. God is the one who designed the family. Do you think it's a good idea to follow his plan for it? If you want it to work for you, and not to become part of the statistics. So for your own benefit, follow God's plan. Second of all, for the impact on others. Right? We talked about wives can have impacts on their husbands, husbands on their wives, fathers on the children. When you fulfill God's plan for you in a family or a marriage, then you can, be, you can have the kind of impact that God wants you to have on others. And finally, for the sake of the artist. God is the one who designed the family. He is the one who did the, uh, created the picture, the artwork that the family is supposed to be. And unless we restore it, the world will not see what God had in mind. And the value of restoring the picture is for the glory of the artist. So be the husband, be the wife, be the child, be the father God wants you to be for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that uh, you are the creator of the universe and that in creating the universe you had many marvelous plans and that the family or the marriage is one of those marvelous plans that you have for us. Lord, we confess that we as a people have completely wrecked that plan, destroyed that picture that uh, you wanted to convey through the marriage and the family. And we recognize, Lord, that you want us to still be the husbands. You want us to be the wives. You want us to be the children. You want us to be the fathers. You want us to be, Lord, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to so be, the, play the role that you want us to play. And we ask, ask, Lord, that you do it not just for our happiness, not just for the good of others, but ultimately, Lord, for your glory, because you deserve it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.